Welcome to the podcast series from the Forum at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.forumhsph.org. Hi, I'm Carol Hills. I'm a producer and reporter with the program PRI's The World, and I'm the moderator today. Our program is going to last an hour, and it's presented in collaboration with PRI's The World and WGBH, and both The Forum and The World are streaming today's event. Um, our panelists, starting from my immediate right, is Juliette Kayam. She's the former Assistant Secretary for Intergovernmental Intergovernmental Affairs at the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, and she's the author of a new book, Security Mom. Leonard Marcus is founding co-director of the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative. Richard Serino is former deputy administrator of FEMA. He's, also, he's currently a distinguished visiting fellow here at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. And Ronald Shouten is director of the Law and Psychiatry Services at Mass General Hospital. He's also associate professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. Um, we're going to have a Q&A during this presentation, and you can email questions to the forum at hsph.harvard.edu. And you can also participate in a live chat that's happening on the forum site right now. Um, we're going to talk today about the growing impact of terrorism in our lives. Uh, as all of you know, uh, we experienced it directly here three years ago, just a few miles from where we sit. And the challenge is how do we increase uh, the public's uh, resilience? And we'll get into what resilience means. Uh, the public's resilience, leaders' resilience, media's resilience, however you want to frame it. Um, how do we uh, develop a society and promote a sense of resilience as opposed to a sense of fear? Um, last month, just last month, there were coordinated attacks in Brussels at the airport and the subway. Um, they were apparently originally uh, aimed at Paris, which had already experienced attacks a few months earlier. Um, those Brussels attacks killed 30 people. It injured hundreds. Um, Paris, 130 people killed, many, many injured. And even since then, there have been hundreds of attacks, uh, terrorist attacks, um, mostly globally, in countries that I'm afraid are, are very used to terrorism. And it's not an infrequent occurrence. Um, but one of those attacks since then was in San Bernardino. And um, that killed 14 people. And we're going to take a look right now at what President Obama said after that attack. He was at a meeting at the National Counterterrorism Center. Since 9-11, we've taken extraordinary steps to strengthen our homeland security. Our borders, our ports, our airports, our aviation security, including enhanced watch lists and screening. And we've gotten much better, thanks in part to the people in this room, of preventing large, complex attacks like 9-11. Moreover, and I think everybody here will agree, we have the very best intelligence counterterrorism, homeland security, and law enforcement professionals in the world. Our folks are the best. Across our government, these dedicated professionals, including here at NCTC, are relentless, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. 
at the Operations Center here, people from across our government work literally shoulder to shoulder, poring over the latest information, analyzing it, integrating it, connecting the dots. They're sharing information, pushing it out across the federal government and, just as importantly, to our state and local partners. Uh, in other words, what you see here today is one strong, united team. In that clip, President Obama is clearly trying to uh, instill confidence that there's a lot of things at play now, a lot of talking, a lot of action, and don't panic. Um, but I wanted to get a reality check first with Juliet. What kind of world are we in now? And, and, and what's the challenge of keeping societies and individuals looking forward and, and not panicking, yet, yet being able to kind of assess uh, assess the threats? Well, in terms of terrorism specifically, because there's all sorts of risks that this country faces, it is a very different world, and you just have to read the newspaper to know it from when I got into counterterrorism, which was the Al-Qaeda days, which was, you know, a very tight-knit group of men uh, who really did exclude others, uh, focus on major attacks. What you have now, what we call, and I don't mean to sound heard about it, but it was you know essentially whack-a-mole counterterrorism. Is uh, you know you're like you know guys and gals are getting radicalized online. Most of the U.S. Uh, uh, members of ISIS are actually converts to Islam. You have uh, the capacity to train in Syria and Iraq uh, because of the wars there and the instability there, and so you have just a very very different. Uh, terrorism threat. And that means, and this is what the president didn't say, that no matter how strong that unity of effort is, there is not a single security apparatus from any country that will get the risk to zero. In other words, our, we will always have vulnerabilities in this country. And I um, believe that's okay, right? I mean, in other words, if we could just get our head around there is a certain amount of vulnerability and risk that we have in this country that we actually should accept, right? The, the borders and the flow of people and goods and ideas are things that we value as citizens. There are, just as an example, two million uh, people entering and exiting domestic airlines in the United States every single day. Just think of what that means in terms of security, but also think how amazing that is in terms of the kind of country that we live in. So just quickly, the, how I think about the vulnerabilities then in resiliency is, and how to measure government is, how effectively are we minimizing the risk? In other words, we're not, I mean, you shouldn't just throw our heads up, our hands up and say, oh, what will be will be. There are ways to measure our resiliency. How well do we minimize the risk? Secondly, how well do we maximize our defenses, right? In other words, the policies that the president was talking about. But third, and most importantly, and this will get to our resiliency discussion, how well and are we able to maintain our spirit as uh, a nation, as communities, as a city, and at the level that I write about in the book, even in our homes? How do we maintain our resiliency? That's the biggest challenge because we'll never get the vulnerability uh, to zero. I'll have recommendations about thinking about resiliency, not simply as a mood, right? Keep calm and carry on or Boston strong, but actually as investments we can make in our own um, uh, public safety apparatus. I want to turn to Lenny now. You study leadership in times of crisis. What are you finding in your research about what makes for effective, leader, for effective leadership in times of crisis? And, and given the kind of fog of war nature of crises mm. and, and terrorism attacks, can, this, can these things be learned? Well, w what we find is that if 
the leaders in a response are resilient, it's more likely that the population will be resilient. And one of the functions of uh, the leaders is to set their, to prepare themselves before, during, and after any kind of an attack to demonstrate that leadership. That message goes all the way out to the community. Now, when we studied the uh, Boston Marathon bombings leadership response, we interviewed those leaders, we observed those leaders. Um, what we found uh, was quite extraordinary. Every event that we'd studied up to that point, there was clearly somebody in charge of the overall operation. And as we were studying the Boston Marathon bombings response, what we came to recognize is there were a lot of leaders working together very well, and no one was responsible for the overall operation. There were people that were responsible for their individual agencies, uh, state police, Boston police, Boston emergency medical, the hospitals. People were leading their organizations. However, the overall response uh, was an example of order beyond control. They were all working together so well. So um, as we went through all of our interviews, we were trying to understand for ourselves to explain the phenomenon and why it worked so well. The marathon bombings themselves were very tragic. Three people were killed instantly. An MIT police officer uh, was killed. Many were injured. However, the response itself was quite successful. Everyone who survived the initial bombings was taken to a hospital and survived. Um, the bad guys were caught in 102 hours. And the city itself was resilient. So we tried to understand why. And what we found was that the leaders were working so well together, order beyond control, with no one in charge. And to explain that, we tested the possibility that they were operating according to the tenets of swarm intelligence. Um, and we went through all of our interview notes and said if there were principles or rules. And what is swarm intelligence? Swarm intelligence describes how something we see all the time, how bees are able to, to work together when no one bee is in charge, or ants build these incredible uh, systems, uh, or even how fish swim, where there are there's a structure for making decisions, there's very clear communication sent out to other creatures and in information comes in that then varies what people do. So we studied swarm intelligence and then went through all of our interview notes and said, well, if swarm intelligence in some form existed here, what would it have been? What would be the principles and rules? We came up with five principles and rules. The first was unity of mission. Everyone was very clear with us that it was about saving lives. And people did extraordinary acts and made very difficult decisions along the lines of saving lives. And Rich will talk, for example, about the tourniquet policy here in, uh, in, in Boston that had people very quickly going in, stop the bleed, save lives. Second was generosity of spirit and action. People were there to help. Even out to the community in Watertown when the manhunt was going on, turns out the, the people that were doing all of those searches weren't being provided centrally with water and food and bathroom facilities. But they were taken care of because when they went to somebody's home to do a search, it was, hey, can you guys use sandwiches, water, etc." So generosity of spirit and action. The third was everyone stayed in their own lane, did their job, and helped others succeed in their other responsibilities. So it was every, every, everybody was working together in coordination that they developed in the course of their work. The fourth principle and rule was no ego, no blame. Nobody got up and said, we did it, and nobody was pointing fingers at the others. And finally, it was working on a foundation of trusting relationships. These leaders had gotten to know one another because there were many exercises and drills that were done before the marathon bombings, so that when the event happened, they were able to work together in very close uh, synergy with one another. We asked them about that instant panicked response that you can get when you find out 
of what, what's happened. And there are two things that they said to us that we thought were really important. One, what went through their mind because of their training was, I can do this. That sense of self-confidence, which is critical for resilience. I can do this. And the second thing that went through their mind is, we can do this. We, uh, we have the capabilities, we've trained together, we know one another, we can do this. And once those two messages went through their mind very, very quickly, they were able to be resilient and they set a model for the community. Rich, I want to turn to you now. Uh, you served at FEMA for several years. Uh, you brought decades of experience to that job. Um, you've, you've dealt with crises nationally and internationally. Um, and, and you really considered the founding father of how the city's emergency services uh, work together in times of crises. Um, three years ago, you happened to be near the finish line. You had just walked away, and then these two bombs went off. And, and you have a, an interesting perspective because you kind of know how things are supposed to work or, or options available at times of crises. Um, I just wondered if you could uh, talk about what makes for a successful response when it comes to emergency response and action. And maybe contrast the Boston Marathon with 9-11. I, I, you make some very kind of poignant, painful uh, observations about uh, I think, contrasting I think the two. First off, one of the things that both the president said and Lenny said, and putting Lenny in the same conversation with the president is something that I think is just, <laughs> um, is it's a team. And I think that you work as a team and you practice as a team and you train as a team, I think is absolutely essential and how people are able to do that. The fact that Boston's strong was no accident. It was no accident that the 262 people who left the scene alive were alive afterwards. It was no accident that they all went to various hospitals and it was evenly distributed among the hospitals. It was no accident that the folks at the marathon had been training for almost that exact scenario. It was no accident that the right equipment was on scene. It was no accident that the medical intelligence center was open. It was no accident that there were extra personnel and equipment on scene. So it was no accident. Uh, a lot of times people say Boston Strong, and Boston Strong, great, but it was no accident. It took years of preparation, years of training, years of drilling, and bringing people together to do that from all the various disciplines, from EMS, police, fire, law enforcement, public health, the hospitals, um, emergency management, and people learning to know each other, as Lenny mentioned, trust. Knowing everybody in the room, uh, even though I was at a FEMA, position, I knew everybody in the room on a first name basis for many, many years. And that matters. Having that trust really makes a difference in having that unity of mission. And I think as people actually have that, we treat, well, we, when I was in Boston, treat special events as a planned disaster. Taking opportunities in any community, whether it's large or small, whenever there are special events, take the opportunity to train at those events. Bring people who haven't been to the table before because that really matters when an incident happens. It mattered on April 15, 2013, that people had worked together in the past. People had trained together. Talking to people who were there instantaneously, rookies, people who aren't on the job more than a year, because of their training, they went, you know, they, for about 10 or 20 seconds, they went to the basement, if you will, and then after that, they came out because of their training and they knew what to do from the person on site at the junior person to all the way up to the senior level personnel. Can you contrast that with just the comparison about the fire and police in and after 9-11? Because it's, it's a very powerful reminder. One of the things after, during 9-11 is when 9-11 happened, there were 343 firefighters that were killed. Mm -hmm. 
and there was only 20, I think it was 27 police officers that were killed. Um, all of them were tragic. Uh, but the police were up above in a helicopter, uh, able to survey the scene and actually see what was happening and saw after the plane struck that the steel was actually starting to melt, if you will, and saw that the building was going to collapse. They were able to order the police officers out of the building because they went on on the same communication system as the fire department and because they weren't together together and talking to each other as well as talking to each other on the radios, the fire department didn't have that information. Um, so it's, it's a contrast of how we have to work together in having communications, both the equipment, but more, impersonal, more important people able to talk to each other. I want to turn to Ron now. Um, he's looking at more of the psychological impact of these kinds of attacks. Uh, we're looking at kind of, there's all sorts of attacks. We're going to look at sort of terrorist attacks. Um, and the range of these kinds of attacks, uh, whether it's uh, Boston Marathon, uh, whether it's an active shooter, uh, you know, school shooting, there's different uh, um, contexts for these. And they can make a public feel very vulnerable and, and sort of reluctant to kind of carry on. And so Ron has really looked into, um, into the challenges for how do we enable the public to, to have psychological resiliency. And uh, what are the challenges you see for that? Well, uh, the good news is that we are by nature quite resilient psychologically and physically. We tend to bounce back. And when we have an event like the Boston Marathon bombing or 9-11, or if you remember back to all our reactions then, we had increased anxiety, there was a great deal of apprehension, we were hypervigilant. Every time the plane took off from Logan and we watched it pass the Hancock building, we paid a lot more attention mm -hmm. to make sure it actually cleared our airspace. That diminishes over time. And for most people, the reaction to that, you know, is heightened right in the initial period afterwards, and then diminishes over the course of three to four weeks. The extent of our reaction, the extent of individual reactions, has a lot to do with both individual factors and the nature of the disaster itself. So for people who have a past history of exposure to trauma, who have been in combat, who are first responders, who have seen a lot of very difficult and dramatic events and traumatic events, they are much more likely to have a more sustained and a more clinically significant response. Uh, it's also the case that natural disasters evoke less of a psychological psychologically damaging response than man-made accidental disasters and those less so than man-made intentional disasters. So those acts in which someone like the Boston Marathon bombings, like 9-11, where someone is intentionally targeting us as individuals, intentionally targeting us as, as a community, that evokes a great deal more emotion and leads to something in terms of uh, estimating the risk, something we talk about probability neglect. When strong emotions are involved, when we feel personally threatened, our community's threatened, our families are threatened, we overestimate the probability of those events happening. So I think one of the challenges to leadership, to the communities, to all of us, uh, I always talk about titrating anxiety. For the people who aren't anxious enough and are ignoring the threat, we want to titrate the anxiety up a little bit. We want them to be... Uh, paying attention, we want to have some level of situational awareness so that they're taking the precautions. On the other hand, for those people who are very anxious and are distracted from their everyday lives, we want to titrate that anxiety down by talking about these events, uh, by talking about the measures that are in place, and by fostering that community resilience 
and doing all the things that, that these other folks have talked about. Now we're going to start the second part of this presentation, which is we've laid out the challenges. We want to kind of talk about uh, policy recommendations and solutions and, and what these panelists are finding about how to create this resiliency. Um, we're going to start with a, a film clip. And this is, um, this is about what, what happened, happened to the Boston, Boston Marathon three years ago. And um, it is a clip from the Boston Public Health Commission. And it's looking at what happened that day and the importance of preparedness as a solution to crises like this. This was filmed one year after the bombing. The level of preparedness is what made it successful. Yes, we had a lot of folks assemble that day. We had an extra 100 and I think 42 people working because, again, we're supporting a large event where there's a lot of traffic impact and everything in the city. But we've had in Boston a lot of big events. We have made, this is an annual event, the 4th of July's annual event. St. Patrick's Day Parade. We have a lot of big events and because we have worked in that atmosphere and we have considered, hey, what happens if something unplanned happens at one of these events? What's, how are we going to manage this? We have these conversations with our partners. The whole system here was better prepared in Boston to step up. No one can erase the memories of what happened. So the challenge for us is to try to move beyond that. And I don't mean that again in any disrespectful way to the victims and the families and what everybody dealt with last year. But we're going to have some real challenges. We're going to be busy even if nothing bad happens. Um, I wanted to start out by asking Rich about this. It seems to me that one of the aspects of the marathon that may have helped in the response was that the marathon itself is a feel-good event. A marathon itself is a coming together of thousands of people and who are ready to help. Um, and how, how do you apply these lessons to, to things that aren't events where people are already poised to help out? How, how do you apply them? And maybe you have some examples. Well, I, I think first off, the fact that of what we saw the folks from Boston EMS and what they did that day was truly amazing and heroic of what they did. And they saved a lot of lives, as I mentioned earlier. And that came because of planning. It also became because there were a lot of people who were volunteering to help out. And they were there, and a lot of those things helped with the survivors. But if that doesn't happen, people are still going to help out. And I think recognizing the fact that the public can actually be an asset versus a liability, whether it's see something, say something before something happens or after something happens, simple things that the public, anybody can do, which happened on Boylston Street that day, is civilians went up and put tourniquets on or stopped the bleeding. You did not see the police officers push everybody out of the way for people who were helping. Making that distinction, which you don't see all the time, you usually see clearing people away all the time. Can you d describe the Stop the Bleed program? Sure. It's a, it's a program that actually was part of um, Homeland Security and all different agencies and the White House and some of the uh, National Preparedness Leadership Initiative cohort actually worked together to develop a program. And it's a simple program that anybody can stop the bleeding. And it doesn't have to be a terrorist event. More likely it's going to be somebody fell and has a severe laceration and you put direct pressure on to, to stop the bleeding. And if that doesn't work, then actually using a tourniquet. Um, a lot of people think that tourniquets are commonplace, that everybody uses them. But for years, people were trained not to use them in the first response community for a couple of decades. Why was that? Um, because people thought it would, people would lose a limb because of it. 
Um, but actually the exact opposite is true. And a lot of data that came out of Iraq and Afghanistan that 18 and 19 year olds were saving their buddy's life by simply using a tourniquet prove that, that that would be the case. In Boston, they have always used tourniquets because of a physician here from the Vietnam era had trained people, but a lot of public safety hadn't used them. And after Newtown and then after the Boston Marathon bombing, a concerted effort to use tourniquets uh, after a disaster has saved literally already countless lives, and most of them nothing to do with terrorism. It's simple things that people can do. Because if you give somebody something simple to do, a, they feel better, and B, you're helping to build a resilience, and you're helping to build resilience on an individual. And in terms of bringing stakeholders together before an event and having those plans in place, is that now applied across the nation? Um, not as much as it should be, uh, but it's something that has been taught for a while, is bringing people together. Because if you bring people together, one of the questions you always ask is, you know, who's not at this table that should be at this table? Um, after the, this year's marathon, just less than a week ago, or a week ago today, um, there are actually a number of people that are already doing after-action reports for this year's marathon in preparing for next year's marathon, and what can we do to change it and improve it. And they do that in Boston for the 4th of July, the marathon, first night, all the special events. Also, sharing information as the conventions are coming up this summer, the Republican Convention, Democratic National Convention, sharing lessons learned from when it was in Boston, when it was in Denver, uh, sharing over the years of how you can improve and sharing that is absolutely essential to having a, a good response in case something does happen and, and preferably preventing things that could happen. Juliet, I want to ask also uh, about the Boston Marathon uh, bombing and um, how you think that, th that this event started out as, as, as an exciting annual citywide celebration of a, an incredibly popular event. And it had to quickly shift into responding to a terrorist response. Yeah. Uh, what are your observations about that? I mean, a couple things, and I'll talk a little bit about the attributes of sort of resilient planning and, and institutions, but obviously that capacity to pivot is essential. And we do that. Um, uh, not simply because you never know what's going to happen, but you know, basically, you know, we should live by the mantra, you know, stuff happens, right? I mean, no matter whether it's terrorism, a hurricane, a pandemic, whatever, th there's no system that is going to reduce the vulnerability to zero. There's just none. There's no public health system. There's no, and so you try to minimize the risk, but you also recognize that stuff happens. And so I think what we've learned in counterterrorism, those of us who've sort of come up that 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 side of the ledger is that a nation too focused on terrorism um, was likely to lose the capacity to do all of these things that are being discussed to be able to respond, recover, and build resilient. Well, as, as Ron said, terrorism is different psychologically. It's not different vis-a-vis -vis the response. In other words, at the moment of the Boston Marathon bombings, nobody at that moment knew whether it was two generators blew up, whether it was uh, some anarchist, whether it was two brothers who had become radicalized, or w w it was a mistake. I mean, no, you don't know. And it doesn't matter at that moment. What you want to do is you want to nurture what we call all hazards approach to resiliency. In other words, just assume something bad will happen. You don't know the motivation. You can deal with that later. It may have an impact on the psychological response. But at the moment, to, be to, 
to, uh, to be more resilient, and that essentially means save as many lives as possible, um, uh, it, you have to take an all-hazards approach. We focus on terrorism because that makes a lot of headlines. It does have a psychological difference. But from the perspective of resilient society, it, it's, uh, it's irrespective of what the motivation is. Lenny, I want to turn to you um, and Ron. We'll start with Lenny. Um, as I mentioned at the beginning, many countries experience terrorist attacks all the time. Um, if you get up in the morning and turn on the radio, as I do, yes, it's still the radio. <laughs> you usually hear about <laughs> you usually hear about a, a, a suicide attack, a car bomb. Yeah. This morning, I woke up and it was a car bomb. Yeah. I can't remember whether it was in Pakistan or Afghanistan. These are just everyday events. Um, and there are other countries there, and so there are many countries that may have lessons or things for the U.S. to learn. Uh, Lenny, what have you found in terms of what other countries can serve as models? Well, so what we've already heard here is how um, experience from Vietnam or experience from Afghanistan has affected what we're doing here, and, and similarly, the experience in Paris and recently in Brussels uh, is part of a platform of learning that is really international. Um, it was it was fascinating. Um, Boston Emergency Medical Services just organized a conference here in Boston that brought over five people who were part of the response in Paris. And um, among the points that they made is they studied the Boston Marathon bombing response here. They had already applied those lessons and they found that they were very valuable uh, when they were faced with their own crisis. So building those uh, platforms uh, to, to extract the lessons learned, uh, as, as Julie says, th these things are going to happen. Um, and how we respond to them will be uh, very much determinant of the resilience and the confidence that people will have in the response. Therefore, it's, it's incumbent upon us. Um, what about countries that, that d deal with this daily? You know, Afghanistan, Pakistan, you know, Israel deals with terrorism a lot. Are, do countries that are constant, constantly having the crap kicked out of them by, by bombs, are they able to share lessons? Yes, in fact, um, uh, uh, Rich, when he was with Boston Emergency Medical Services, um, um, and we're proud to say that he's an NPLI graduate, <laughs> uh, with other NPLI graduates had done exactly that. They organized a program called Tale of Our Cities. And um, it was to bring people together from other locations that had responded to terrorist events and uh, share those lessons learned. So here in Boston, we had people from Spain, London, Israel, India, Pakistan, talking about what happened in these improvised explosive device attacks. And what was really interesting afterwards in, in speaking to the responders, they remembered what had been said, the possibility of a secondary device. You want to evacuate very quickly. Um, the, the, the tourniquets, these are all lessons that have been shared internationally and really do make a difference in the, emo in the moment because then people have the confidence of saying, I have some experience. The, the problem is, and maybe the advantage, we don't have a lot of experience with terrorism. I mean, Boston Marathon was a unique novel event, and yet they were able to glean from the experience of others. And, and that's going to be critically important in moving forward. Ron, I'd love to hear from you about, um, in terms of other countries, what they can share. And I know there, is, there are interesting psychological lessons learned from um, what, what certain countries do in response to suicide bombings, the sort of the, the, the back to normal uh, sure. behavior. I mean, if you could get into that. It, it's, it's unfortunate to have to say, but 
countries that have more exposure to these events, while certainly people continue to respond to them and, and they continue to have a negative impact, actually people do get somewhat desensitized, right? They get used to it. Uh, they have it now within the realm of possibility that some bad thing is going to happen. I mean, one of the factors that really complicated our emotional responses to 9-11 to the Boston Marathon bombing is that prior to 9-11, certainly, you know, we were protected by these great oceans and by these wonderful, really quite safe borders. How can anything like this happen to us? And suddenly we get sucker punched with this horrible event. Same thing with the Boston Marathon, you know, wonderful, happy event. The world comes together in Boston, we're celebrated, and this ultimate act of evil occurs in, in the face of it. Uh, we're becoming more aware, as Juliet says, bad th Juliet says that bad things can happen. And so sadly, we get a little bit desensitized to it. And, and to help us respond, this idea of cleaning up afterwards, cleaning up the bomb site, repotting the plants in the marketplace, opening the marketplace as soon as possible, getting us back to normal, really helps feed into our natural resilience. That in combination with the idea that um, we need to take a role in cleaning up. We, we are part of the community recovery process, even at the same time as we are victims. Is, is there a feeling that Boston responded in that way after the bombings three years ago, that we got back to normal pretty fast? Oh, it, I think it was a characteristic Boston attitude, right? Like, you're not shutting us down, right? And I won't quote Big Poppy on this one, but you all, you all know the quote, right? That we will not have our lives and our city and our culture and our, you know, the way we look at the world taken away from us. We were defiant in many ways in the face of this, even at the same time as we were mourning. So. And I think one, one part of that is one of the things that we did a number of years ago was actually change some words, because words are important, is we tried to, to look at people who survived as survivors, whether it's from a terrorist incident, whether it's from the Boston Marathon, whether it's from a natural hazard, versus calling someone a victim. And I think that's a big difference and a big shift that we've seen, because somebody who was a victim, unfortunately, is people who, who died, who we lost. If we turn, turn and look at everybody else as a survivor, I think it's really powerful for people to look at themselves as survivors and us to look at them as survivors as too. That little bit of a change makes a huge difference in how people look at themselves and then how a community looks at themselves as well and how they're able to recover and recover quicker. And of course, we saw several survivors run in yeah. the marathon that just occurred. Yeah, just occurred, and they're running across country. Uh, <laughs> some of them right now, actually, they're running across to, and to get to San Francisco by July wow. to spread the to spread the message. Wow. Um, Lenny, what does resiliency actually mean to you? So it's several things. One of them is the actual definition is many times referred to like a, a ball, where you can you can uh, squish it and it comes back to its original shape. So that's the engineering uh, definition of resiliency. We're talking about social resiliency. It's that ability to bounce back uh, and to be able to function as you did before whatever the incident is. Uh, in, our, in our role, in our perspective though, there's a little bit more. Have you learned the lessons from whatever was the trauma that you experienced so that you're actually stronger on the other side? And it's that added strength that we think is the essence of the resilience. And just go back to what Ron said, um, after Boston, there was a tremendous effort to get that mailbox back in place and the tree where that second bombing had gone off. And when we talked with the FBI, they were really, really focused on getting the investigation done quickly uh, so that they could clear the scene 
and the restaurants could reopen and life could come back to normal. So it is, uh, there's a personal sense of resiliency of being able to move forward. What we talked about, I have confidence. I can do this. We can do this. And then there's a community sense of resiliency. And when those all align, we see what happened in Boston, what happened in other communities, Joplin, for example, mm -hmm. Missouri, after the uh, tornado that hit there, that the community bounces back sometimes even stronger than it was beforehand. Juliet, I want to turn to you. I, I know you have sort of five common factors oh, yeah. that, that, that help make a community resilient. What are those? So uh, let me just uh, describe resiliency, actually re-meaning again, but cilient, those, I had to look this up, I didn't take Latin, yeah. actually means jumping. And I love thinking about resiliency that way because it's active. It's not sort of, oh, we're Boston strong. It's not a mood. It's not the, you know, oh, if we only did more yoga, we'd be fine. It's literally active investments. And so in my work looking at resiliency, um, and I hope these sound familiar because what I try to do is bring stuff back home as well. So I do homeland and home. There are five major attributes to any resilient system. You can start from the home, community, city, state, nation. So the first is they all have redundancies and I'll try to make this very basic to people. So that's a backup generator at a hospital but you could think about that in your own home. You don't, you know, you don't have a single point of failure, essentially. You have backup systems. The second, we've talked about this, they are flexible systems and, the, and you have a commitment to flexibility through training and exercises. They can pivot because they don't know. You don't know. Is it terrorism, hurricane? You don't know, but you have to be able to pivot. The third is that they are um, uh, systems that have invested in what we call fail-safe mechanisms. That sounds very wonky, um, but basically, uh, if you assume that stuff is going to happen, that's the world I live in, right? I can't stop all bad things from happening. How do you minimize the cascading losses, the, the impact? So fail-safe systems are ones in which can stop the, the losses. So the best example in our modern society is how the Superdome was rebuilt um, after Hurricane Katrina. The 2013 Super Bowl was half light, half dark. That's actually a successful fail-safe system. It was a generator that once it started having cascading losses, it actually sort of separated itself, right? And so that you have a Superdome in half light. It's much better than a Superdome in all darkness. Uh, the fourth is that they have a capacity to rapidly rebound. We've talked about that. Um, and not just back to normal, but back to better. Uh, and so investments are made in the, in, in the assumption that the system will go down or that it will have a disruption. Can it can it rebound? Our MBTA here in Boston is uh, notoriously uh, not resilient um, because apparently <laughs> snow is a shock, but we haven't invested in the capacity to bounce back. Compare that to New York system, which has invested in resilient resiliency. It was up and running four days after being completely flooded after Hurricane Sandy. And then fifth is, and we've talked about this, this ability to learn and build anew. In other words, you take uh, you take lessons learned very seriously. They're not opportunities to pat yourself on the back. They are the capacity to learn because um, um, it, stuff will happen again. In other words, this idea that there's some finish line, that if we could only all get there, is just absurd in the, in the global world that we live in. So you take uh, lessons learned very seriously. So in, on a personal level, I often say a lot of parents have locked their kids in a car. Very few have done it twice, right? I mean, in other words, we have a capacity on in every individual level also to, to learn and be better because other things will happen in our life. So those are the five main attributes of 
um, any resilient system and recognizing that it's it's the word jump. I mean, it's actually quite active. Just makes me, you know, think about it differently than than it's sort of you know, oh, if we just sort of chill out and this is our Irish stock and we're Boston strong. It's a much it's a much more investment related uh, policy. Uh, we're going to go to Q and A in a couple minutes, but I want to ask one question because this is um, this is the if you see something, say something, which which is a great idea. But it can also lead to, to you know, profiling and a lot of things. Just last week on PRI's The World, we did a story about the Iraqi American who was kicked off a Southwest Airways air, airline flight because he was on a phone before the plane took off. He said, inshallah, you know, a, a, a very common word in Arabic to mean all sorts of things. And um, so there, there's kind of, there's overreaction. And how do you, how do you uh, strike the right balance? Um, I, when I've always, when I see, if you see something, say something. I'm not, sh I'm not sure what that means, and I just wonder if anybody can shed light on how how we, how we empower a community without, uh, without kind of demonizing, the other. I, I think part of the problem there is how we define community. So if we define community as all other human beings, the fact that they're speaking a different language, that they look different from us, doesn't really matter because we're all in this together. But once we become sensitized to, hypersensitized to those distinguishing features and start to connect those to negative outcomes, we're going to have a very good idea, like see something, say something, have potentially very negative, negative effects. I think that there's a number of cases where see something, say something has saved a lot of lives as well. I think that people have seen some activity that doesn't look right or see a backpack in the wrong place. Um, that makes a difference. And there's a number of examples from other marathons after the Boston bombing marathon where there was, um, you know, a backpack along the route that did have something suspicious in it that they were able to neutralize. There was something in New York City that they actually were able to diffuse when they saw something there as well. But it's also being able to, when you, when you see something, say something, but think as well. You know, there should be that other word on there as well. It's not just like go around screaming, you know, but also think. Uh, in certain actions that you can take to make a difference as well. And, and just back to that point, it was the halal food vendor yeah. in Times Square yes. who called in the suspicious van that was parked in the wrong place at the wrong time and avoided a tremendous disaster. And we know that the shoe bomber and the underwear bomber, these were situations on airplanes where uh, passengers saw something very, very suspicious and they took action. So um, creating that balance is going to be difficult. Um, because when, when something like that does happen, your bystanders or your civilians are your first line of defense. Can I say something about counterterrorism and I'm, uh, politics with a little P here? Um, so when I said, you know, you measure safety and security by minimizing risk, maximizing defenses, and then the most important attribute is maintaining our spirit. There is a lot of talk in this day and age about uh, focusing on certain communities or religions or excluding them from um, the United States. Muslims, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's viewed as strong and a way to deal with counterterrorism. And I'll tell you, having been in the field a long time, if there's any attribute of American society uh, that has made us safer and more resilient and stronger, it's clearly our geography. We benefit from that. But it's our capacity over the century um, through fits and starts, it's not been perfect, I'll I give you lots of counterexamples, to assimilate, acclimate, embrace, elevate the other, 
right? So you think of Irish or Puerto Ricans or Mexicans or Muslims. And if we forget that, that that actually is part of our counterterrorism effort, um, we will not only be a country we don't recognize, but we will be less resilient because we will put up divisions in this society that don't exist now. We don't have Europe's problem. We don't have what's going on in the rest of the world. So it's just worth remembering that in this stage where people are more anxious that maintaining our spirit is part of what makes us stronger and safe. It's not only just a feel good thing. We're going to switch to Q&A to, to wrap up this session. Uh, I'm going to turn to Lisa first. She has an online question. Thanks, and I also want to thank you for addressing this question about the other and demonizing, because we have had some questions come through about that. Okay. So um, this one is from Dan Inbar, chairman of the Homeland Security Research Corporation. How will the ISIS-inspired, complex, and well-planned Paris and Brussels carnage and threat of more attacks to come affect West Europe? Assuming no such attack will be executed during the next year, will the effect decay, as in the cases of the Madrid and London attacks, or will it transform as it did in the post 9-11 in the USA, the West European homeland security strategy, internal security agencies, and funding for years? Anyone want to take that off? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'll jump in. Okay. That uh, It's a tough question, yeah. a very important question. And, and that's where leaders and leadership is really going to set the tone. And just to pick up on what uh, Juliet said, which is really important, um, our political leaders, um, our career leaders who are part of this community uh, that's grappling with this, there are no easy answers. And I think that's, that's you know, part of what we need to understand. They will set the tone. And if leaders see this as a challenge that we can meet and a challenge that we can all overcome, we will be stronger and countries in Europe will be stronger. If we go into our own shell, if we're intimidated, in many ways what we're doing is only encouraging the bad guys because of that kind of a reaction. And so how we define our strength and what we do as nations and what we do as nations together will really determine how resilient we are in the long run. And we're seeing that play out every day in Europe. Um, you know, a, a region that was that strive that was striving to be open for decades is now basically gradually closing right. borders, and they're really grappling with uh, how to be secure and also be uh, democratically plural. Um, anyone else want to comment on that, or you want to go to the next question? I, yeah. I would just say um, that if we were just to look at the trajectory of human behavior, one would expect us to start to ignore it and go the way, as Dan points out, go the way of London and Madrid and just sort of calm down and ignore it. And that just ties in exactly with what Lenny said, which is it's the role of leadership to make sure that we stay vigilant and, mm -hmm. and actually prepare for these events. And one other thing I think that, that Dan mentioned is how do we, how do we, you know, what lessons can they learn? You know, a lot of times Juliet, you know, talk about lessons learned, but quite often it's lessons unlearned. Yeah is things that we know, you know are gonna happen and happen and happen again, mm -hmm. but we don't look at the history and we don't look at lessons learned. In Dan's question, he mentioned that uh, you know, on nine, after 9-11, this country pivoted. You know, maybe a little too much in one way, but it <laughs> pivoted. Um, and I think that one of the things that, you, you know, in Boston, people pivoted after that. So I think one of the things that in Paris, as Lenny mentioned earlier, Paris learned of how the medical response, both pre-hospital and hospital went, and they have went back and changed how they did some, th some things. So I think one of the things that you know, in the leaders in Europe can also do is to look at how 
specifically lessons learned as opposed to going down the road that a lot of us had for years lessons unlearned. And I think on that question that this goes well beyond counterterrorism. Uh, you know, as I was saying earlier, um, Europe has a generational problem, and it would be wrong to think that Europe's problem is a non-European problem coming into Europe and killing Europeans. Their own citizens are uh, sufficiently for, you can have all sorts of reasons for it, are leaving the country, going to other countries to get trained, and coming back and killing their citizens. So we fortunately don't have that issue in the numbers they have, but you know, this gets to, uh, you know, sort of resilient societies are ones that can uh, uh, acclimate and assimilate many other voices. That clearly did not happen in Europe, and so not to sound doom and gloom, but they don't have a, they don't have a preparedness and response problem. They have a generational problem that is going to take decades to fix. Thank you for making that point. I think we'll do one more from online. I know we have some audience questions. I just don't like to neglect the online audience because <laughs> they're not here. So um, this is from our live chat that's going on. Today's New York Times mentioned that the U.S. is now targeting ISIS through cyber attacks. Can the panel address the role of cyber attacks from a public health perspective? Are there aspects of preparedness that are uniquely important to keep in mind for attacks conducted from the cyber arena? Anyone? These are tough. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we all look at Lenny. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> We're all like, yeah. so, so actually, the NPLI has gotten fascinated with this uh, question of cyber. Because we, as a society, put our lives into the cyber world because it was cheap, and it was efficient, and it was easy. And we did that before we really put up the protections on all of that data and all that information, basically our whole lives. So what we're facing now is our life is in the cyber world and it's not protected. And what we're seeing is that cyber attacks are part of daily life. Many times we're not even aware that we've been hacked or we've been fished or we've been attacked. And for public health, that means that a lot of public health information, information in hospitals, information about systems is amenable to attack and our critical infrastructure is amenable to attack. So there's a concern, for example, that we could lose our electricity uh, because there's been a cyber attack against us. So these problems are very, very complex. And we all now have to start looking at cyber as a risk factor for population well-being. And you are right. There is a lot going on in the government. Not all of that are they revealing. It's significant that in today's New York Times, the headline is about a cyber command, what the U.S. Department of Defense and, US, and, and the National Security Agency are doing about ISIS through the cyber vehicle. The only thing I can add on that is that um, on, on PRI's The World, we do consistent reporting on the use of cyberspace as the main place of recruiting right. um, for ISIS and other extremist groups. And so the, the online arena is extremely uh, important to ISIS. So any attempts at trying to circumvent that uh, are really important. I think it's tough, but that's that's the whole way this is happening. Right. And, and I, I would just add that you know, Lenny speaks to this on sort of the macro level, but also we need to take responsibility for our own online behavior. I was involved in an evaluation of a 15-year-old recently who had all sorts of horrible things mm. on his computer and his laptop and his phone, including his contacts with ISIS recruiters. Mm. Uh, and his parents, who were lovely, wonderful, caring people, he was into computers, you know, let him have his way, didn't really know what was going on. So a message to us 
as parents is we need to be aware of what our kids are doing and, and teach them good cyber hygiene, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, and make sure they're not going places we don't want them to go. This is a kid who is exposed to child porno or to pornography at age eight, mm -hmm. right? And his parents thought he was playing whatever yeah. computer game. So. Well, I would just say on that, it is true that like, you sort of think of cybersecurity as like, oh, the NSA or someone, some other big agency has to deal with that. But if you actually look at these big vulnerabilities, um, you know, Sony was a single system administrator. Look at the Panama Papers, a law firm that did not, I mean, it's, you know, I'm not like I'm justifying what the prime ministers did, but nonetheless, they did have lawyers and you want the lawyers to protect their secrets. So um, Panama Papers was a uh, essentially a very unsophisticated hack of a law firm in Panama. Um, you look at OPM, those of us whose security clearances were probably given to the Chinese. Um, you look at OPM, I am sure OPM just thought, well, we're not the cyber people, right? And it's really the fringes. Um, Office, Office of Personnel of Management, the one that 21 million okay. security clearances were given so to some country. I want to go to the audience because we're getting close on time and an audience question. Oh. Hi, my name is Jimena from Switzerland. I'm in the sec uh, second year of my master's here at the Harvard School of Public Health. Um, thank you for the conversation, especially your insights on the European perspective. What I want to ask you is we've been talking, or you've been talking a lot today about how um, uh, cities and local governments and um, countries have been learning from other ex other countries' experiences and their own experiences on how to build their resilience. I was wondering whether uh, we are worried or we are keeping or we're studying how the people committing these acts are learning about the, ex the those same experiences and how they how they are shifting the way they're committing the acts according to how they're seeing what they've done well or what they haven't done well. Thank you. Yes, it's a, actually a, a common problem, and it goes back actually into the 90s, into the first World Trade Center bombing that, that occurred, is that they actually studied how responders respond. They actually studied where they're going to go. They actually said in the 90s, after the first attack, that they would do this again, and they were patient. Um, but they also look at, and there's a number of instances why there's a second bombing. Uh, at, at sites, a lot of times it's designated to put it where the first responders go. So there's people. Yes, they do study what what first responders do, but in the same time, it's it's necessary for us to get the information out so everybody's aware of that as well. So it's, yes, they do, uh, but it's it's important to make sure that people are aware of that, and that's actually one of the things that went through people's mind actually, on. Um, you know, April 15, 2013, was, okay, two bombs went off, where's another device? Usually there are four devices. Mm -hmm. One, a, an explosion happened at the John F. Kennedy Library. We didn't know if that was a bomb as well. And people were thinking, okay, are they going to look at the medical tent? Are they going to look at places, command posts? So that was all actually figured into what they were going to do. Even um, the, there was a, a plane that was taken down by an explosive in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt. And it said that these organizations are learning and adapting. So that was their test. If we can do it here, maybe we could do it someplace else. And therein the importance of intelligence agencies, military, law enforcement, understanding what was done and how it was done, and then changing procedures here to ensure safety. So it's a constant learning and adaptation process. Another question? Yes. Uh, sort of looking at places away from where the terrorist act terrorist acts actually occur. How do you build resiliency and uh, recovery amongst these populations? 
sort of thinking about people in um, Kansas or Idaho that don't see the, the tree getting replanted and only get the feed of the sensationalist media. Um, how do you keep their resilience? I think resilience really starts, as Juliet mentioned, at home. If you are a resilient person and you can have certain things, in Kansas, for example, they may not have to worry about hurricanes, but they certainly have to worry about tornadoes. Uh, and they're very resilient when it comes to tornadoes, more so than we are in Massachusetts. So it's understanding what the threat is going to be in a natural disaster, and usually you can have a pretty good idea what those are, but also taking the opportunity to educate people of how they can be prepared on a regular basis. So if you are prepared as an individual, and then your neighborhood's pre prepared or resilient, and then your community is resilient, then you're going to become a resilient city and then a resilient state and a resilient country. But it's really how you become, starting at the individual le level, level, will be a resilient person and then that is going to help build a resilient community. And there's uh, many ways to continue to take the opportunity to educate people uh, on their resilience and how they become resilient in their community. And talk about, you know, uh, bouncing back. Well, I actually think instead of bouncing back, bounce forward. Because um, I think if you're able to bounce forward, you're able to rebuild better, you're able to be better yourself. And as Juliet said, it's more action that you're able to bounce forward or bounce back. It's, you know, it has a different connotation. Yeah. Any other quick questions? All right, well, um, we're coming to the end of our session, but before we go, we would like each of our panelists to offer a kind of policy recommendation. Um, this portion of the, of the uh, talk will be uh, recorded and sent to policymakers. So use your influence. <laughs> We'd like a policy recommendation from each of you. you. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start with uh, Sure. I, in terms of, you know, in my view, in terms of building resilience after a disaster like this, or uh, like the Boston Marathon bombing or, or a natural disaster, people need the basics. They need first aid. They need ongoing medical care. They need food. They need shelter. They need to know where their family members are. They need information, right? Uh, the psychological support services should be offered. They should be there. But people at that point in time in the first 24 to 48 hours, first week, don't need psychotherapy. What they need is community support. They need to know that their workplaces are there for them, that their communities are there for them, uh, that their families, people do the best when they band together, when neighbors get together rather than waiting for government to come in and help. It has to be a community response. So I'd say structure that, get the basics down. Systems like uh, we have here in Boston are just phenomenal. And they, if you think about the infrastructure, you think what's in place in terms of medical care, no one who got to a hospital died at the Boston Marathon bombing. That is incredible and speaks to our, our medical infrastructure here. So I say build infrastructure, build the supports, offer support, after the fact, in terms of on an ongoing basis, in terms of psychological support services, after 9/11, my experience working with several companies was that employees very much appreciated knowing that psychological support services were being offered. Very few took advantage of them. It was knowing that it was there that was critical. I would say one of the the simplest things is to build relationships because relationships matter. And bringing people together is the absolute essence in, in remembering that it's about people. It's people first in building those relationships. Uh, for policymakers, we tend to have a roller coaster of funding and support. 
We need a steady public health infrastructure. So whether it's Ebola or Zika, that infrastructure is there. It's prepared and it can respond well. What we tend to, to do is wait for the bad thing to happen, then throw a lot of money at it, and then take that money away. The infrastructure gets weaker. It's not a way to re really create public health preparedness or resilience. What, so what is needed specifically? We, we, we need to have ongoing support so that the infrastructure of public health is strong okay. all the time, not just right after an event. Well, terrorism is uh, a different kind of threat. It is, at the moment it happens, no different than all the other threats that, that uh, all of us have been talking about. So um, in terms of investments and uh, resiliency, not to think of it as, um, as passive, but as uh, vigorous investments in resilient systems, which includes flexibility, capacity to rebound, redundancies built into the system, and then, of course, uh, a very, very sophisticated lessons learned apparatus, because uh, uh, when you get through this thing, uh, stuff is going to happen again. Uh, it's inevitable. Uh, and embrace it rather than uh, hide from it. I want to thank all of you today, and I want to thank our panelists, Juliet Kayyem, Leonard Marcus, Richard Serino, and Ron Schouten. Um, this, uh, I want to encourage all of you to continue the conversation online um, at the forum website, forumhsph.org. If you can tune into the next forum, it's going to be May 10th, Tuesday. It's on drowsy driving featuring Ariana Huffington. So I thank you all for I thank you all for coming and, and please continue on the conversation online and thanks for thank you for This has been a production of the forum at Harvard TH Chan School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of this event and post your comments at www.forumhsph.org. Thank you for sharing the forum.